Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We should all strive to learn from the past, right? The problem comes in when we learn the wrong things from the past. Depending on your worldview, two people may look at the same thing and have opposite opinions as to if they should do that thing again or not, or if they should believe that thing or not in the future. On today's episode, first we're going to go all the way back to the dawn of time, allegedly, then we'll start looking at what terrifying things are happening in our present day, and finally it's time to look to the future. So, get in your cardboard box spaceship, figure out who your comrades are, and waive your right to contact a lawyer, because uh, there we were, and here we are, and here we go. Day after day, article after article, revelation after revelation, I become increasingly wary that I might just be a big stupid. I don't feel like I am. I don't get the impression that others think I Well, some some probably. Doesn't matter. I seem to manage to make it through life personally and professionally, more awkwardly, socially, but I think I might be a dummy. I say this because I look over on my wall and in a very nice frame. It's a very official-looking document. has my name on it. It says that I, in fact, have a degree of Bachelors of Science. There was a time, a distant time past, where that alone would indicate smartitude. But I'm reading these articles and I don't know if I want to be lumped in with science anymore. Because science appears to have had a serious head injury and nobody is helping science. He's just lumbering along, wandering into traffic with a dazed look on his anthropomorphic face but still spouting words and phrases claimed to be true, and people all around are still listening to him as if he had a clue about what's going on anywhere with with anything. Case in point, found on skyandtelescope.org, headline, The James Webb Space Telescope is finding too many early galaxies. <laughs> well, I, I guess I just have to ask, did anyone pull the JWST aside and have a little talk with it? Do they explain in no uncertain terms what it is and is not allowed to discover in the deepest reaches of space and allegedly time? But I think that's a farce in itself. We'll get to that. Apparently nobody's done that with the space telescope. The first line of this article states, quote, evidence is building that the first galaxies formed earlier than expected. Oh, well, isn't it curious how the evolutionary sciences, obviously with quotes around that word, constantly have to change and update their timeline. Now, what we're told is that uh, that's what science does. Okay, well, yeah, to some degree, sure, sure. But, but there's literally nothing solid about any aspect of evolution. It's all fluid because every discovery points to the fact that the evolutionary theory is stupid. It always has been. So the theory is that since the JWST is much more powerful than the Hubble, I guess we could call that the H, we'll be able to see farther and farther into space, meaning deeper and deeper back into time. Now I want to back up to this point. 
the idea that we're flying back through time by looking farther into space. On the surface, that sounds plausible. We know, or some of us know, well, it's known, that based on the speed of light, it takes about eight minutes for the light of the sun to reach the Earth. So when we look up at the sun, and don't, don't do it for long, we're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. If the sun exploded, we wouldn't know for eight minutes, and then it wouldn't matter if we knew it or not. So the theory, as best I can work out in my head, is that light is kind of like a ladder, and each rung we can climb is farther back in time. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Oh, there it goes again. Anyway, that's what they'd have us believe. Now, I claim this to be bunk. Oh, sorry to use that language, but yes, I say bunk to this. This concept of peering back into time is important to evolutionary scientists because this is how they'll prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Big Bang was the initial event that created, through random chance, everything that we have today. The JWST is supposed to get us within a few hundred million years of that explosion, allegedly. But as I've said in a previous episode, this idea makes no sense to me. If I'm up in the crow's nest of my pirate ship with my trusty telescope, and I look across the sea for some sweet, sweet booty, and then I spot her and her fantastical, bountiful booty, Remember, ships are given the pronoun her. Not sure what you were thinking of. I'm not looking back in time, at least not really. I'm seeing that ship as it was, however many milliseconds it took for light to travel from the ship to the optics of my telescope, sure. So technically I'm seeing it sooner than I would if I had just used my eyeball, but only by the length of my pirate captain's eyepiece. So if I have the best telescope a pirate could buy, maybe... It's, I don't know, two feet long. So at the speed of light, hang with me here, 983,571,088 feet per second, the optics of the telescope jutting two feet farther out than my eyeball, well, that means that I saw the ship 0.000000002 seconds sooner than I would with my eyeball. Or more accurately, the end of the telescope saw it that much sooner. The image itself still has to travel to my eye, or I can't see it. So, in this case, the telescope doesn't really help me look back in time. It just makes the ship, you know, bigger. Now, the argument is that everything we see has happened in the past, since it takes more than zero seconds for light to travel to our eye, and more than zero seconds for our brain to process the image. Okay, yeah, sure. But the fastest we can see anything is basically right now, which is impossible. Yeah, that takes a little bit of time, but that's the theoretical fastest. So if you were to stand nose to nose with someone, first, hopefully you've popped in a Tic Tac or an Altoid or something, but second, you're seeing them as real time as you possibly can because you're right there face to face. So going back to my ship example, now let's say that instead of my telescope, I've got the James Webb Space Telescope in the crow's nest with me. Could I look back at that ship and go back in time to when the ship was still docked at port, loading that booty I'm so interested in? No, because first, the JWST is not a time machine. It can only see what's happening now. It can't go back in time to see what happened prior to now. And second, it's still beholden to the time it takes for that light to get to the optics of the JWST. Again, the JWST just allows us to see it uh, larger and with just wonderful detail. 
Now, when we shoot the JWST into space and have it peer into the farthest reaches, we're literally wanting to see stellar evolution, just mere seconds after the Big Bang. But the Big Bang has already happened, allegedly. We can't peer back through space and see back then. Back back then has already happened. A telescope can only look at what the area looks like now. And when I say now, I mean the now that exists as the light, the image, as it reaches the JWST, the optics. So this massive telescope can see things sooner than we can due to how far away it is from the Earth. And that's all. The JWST will orbit the sun about one million miles away from the Earth, farther into space. So that means that the images will hit the optics of the JWST about five seconds sooner than they would make it to Earth. Now, it can look deeper into space with much more clarity because it's magnifying the image. But but I don't see how that's looking back in time. Okay, so hold that thought. Now let's think about the Big Bang itself. The Big Bang is an event that happened about 13.7 or so billion years ago, allegedly. That means that the Big Bang is done. It, it banged bigly already. If this were true, that means it's already happened. So why do we think that light from that event still exists? I mean, at least as much as so as to be able to look farther into space and see older and older light. That doesn't really make any sense, at least doesn't make any sense to me. Scientists believe that they can find the origin location of the Big Bang because of the red shift indicating light moving away from somewhere. So if we trace back all of the red shifts that we see, we can find that singular origin point of the Big Bang in space, the origin point where everything is moving away from. But if it's already happened, as the JWST looks deeper and deeper into space, wouldn't it just see a large empty region? a place devoid of everything? The theory is that everything in the universe collapsed and compacted tighter and tighter until the point that it became nothing. Yes, that's what the textbooks teach our kids. This nothing spun faster and faster, got hotter and hotter, and eventually it had itself a little old come apart, exploded, right? Now this explosion happened in space. Yeah, and there's a lot of theories to this, but there's no air in space, no air currents, no air resistance, nothing. It's a vacuum. Moreover, there was nothing in space because it was completely empty, not a single obstacle out there because remember, it was all spinning and heating as nothing until all of that nothing exploded. So if this ball of nothing exploded in the middle of nothing in a complete vacuum, that means that the closest anything could have ever been was right before the explosion. Once the explosion occurs, everything moves away from everything else, meaning that whatever it was that exploded and formed after the explosion should have never been able to come together to combine into anything bigger, like atoms, or dust clouds, or stars, or planets. Of course, if you dig into this theory a little bit farther, you'll find unbelievable, and I mean that quite literally, theories of light and energy and gluon energy that I think I covered in a very early episode of the podcast, and other theories of just absolute pure fantasy as to how everything worked. Regardless, if we have an explosion in a vacuum, then everything would shoot out equally in all directions and nothing would exist at the central point of the explosion. 
Now, given 13.8 billion years, that empty space where the explosion happened would have become larger and larger, and that would be the state of the universe 13.8 billion years post-Big Bang, right now, which is what the JWST could see. It could see whatever it is that is there now. Now, if all it takes, think about this, if all it takes is a very powerful telescope to look back in time, why don't we use the same kind of technology to figure out who committed a murder? Just train a telescope on the location of the murder, and we'll be able to peer back in time to see the murder in real time. Of course, I would be told that that's just silly. I'm just being a silly head. But this is, is exactly what we're being told to believe by looking into space, isn't it? Isn't that what we're being told? Now, I maintain that we're not looking back in time. We're just looking farther into space with much greater clarity than ever before. And that's all. And it's fantastic. It's beautiful. But that's all. Okay, so my premise is that using a telescope to look back in time is silly. But let's disregard that for a moment and use the NASA scientist theory that we're looking back in time. So back to our article. During the 241st meeting of the American Astronomical Society, <sighs> Jahan TP with the Rochester Institute of Technology, speaking as part of the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Sciences, you got all that? Said that the JWST was giving us images of galaxies between 500 million and 2 billion years after the Big Bang. So the theory is that however the galaxies formed, and there are a variety of theories as to how did that happen, it comes down to a process of particles and atoms attracting each other, combining, grouping together to make mass, etc., etc., with parts and pieces being added, and eventually, poof, galaxies formed. The theory is that if you look at these very young galaxies, they'll be kind of chaotic. They won't be formed into relatively nice spirals like we see with the Milky Way galaxy or some other sort of mature shape. The problem is the theory expects that when you look back this far in time, you know, to 500 million years after the Big Bang, which is so very early in time, you'd find some galaxies that have formed into mature configurations, but most galaxies would be kind of a mess as nature is slowly organizing them. What the images are revealing is that there are a, uh, a lot of mature galaxies, as defined by their mature shape and configuration. Now, another presenter stated that he was analyzing galaxies even older, 200 million to 400 million years after the Big Bang. And again, unexpected results presented. Uh, Hao Jing Yan, the presenter in question from the University of Missouri, stated, quote, Our previously favored picture of galaxy formation in the early universe must be revised. Oh, Oh, yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> Another presenter, Jordan Morocha from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said that there are either many more galaxies than previously thought, or they're much brighter than the model predicts. He said, quote, I think we have more to think about. Yep, yep, I, I would agree. Maybe dump your silly theory when the predictions from the theory are all wrong. I, and then when they're completely wrong, you know, maybe it's a bad theory. How about that? Uh, but no, no, that's, that's not what they're going to think about. They'll think about how to either spin what they're seeing to make it sound good, or or they'll just create a new theory. I mean, either way is fine, as long as evolution and the Big Bang is still seated in its place of honor. Okay, look, here's the deal. Evolution. A full frontal direct attack on biblical authority 
as well as not only the sovereignty and omnipotence, but the very existence of God, is a stupid theory. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that these scientists have more letters and acronyms after their names than I do, more degrees on the wall than I do, more published articles than I do. I do have one, though. That's something. More student debt than I do, or did, and are considered to be much more credible than I. I fully admit all of these things. But for all that they have, they lack one or possibly more things. First, they lack basic logical reasoning skills. Anyone with the very basic ability to use logic could look at these theories, then look at the evidence, then look at how the models and simulations fail every single time, then look at how the answer is to either make time longer or space bigger or just dip into science fiction, you know, to create a new theory, and reason to him or herself that uh, maybe things are not as they appear. And that's the first possibility. Second, they may just be disingenuous. I think this is probably the least likely of the possibilities, but it could be that they know it's wrong. They know none of this is plausible. They just like to be in with the crowd, this specific crowd, or they like to deceive others. So they just continue on. Third, they may be trapped. For those that have poured their very lives into something, the idea of, you know, letting go or doing a complete about face you know, that's not overly appealing. I get that. They may be stuck, not wanting to lose credibility or face embarrassment. Just keep up the charade, and eventually death will free them of this pseudoscientific prison. Fourth, and whether they realize this or not, this is definitely a factor. They don't want and can't have there be an all-powerful creator God. The implications of a God-created universe, of a being so powerful that he could simply speak everything into existence in six days, including man, oh, that's a terrifying proposition. The idea that this God, possibly even the God of the Bible, gasp, created everything, created man, created each one of them, and thus has full rights and claim over each of us, has rules and laws, has created a very narrow way to eternal life in paradise— a very broad way to eternal torment as punishment, consequences for unrepentant actions, that, that, that's too far over the line of credulity or anything they're willing to accept. Remember, science is the study of what you can use your senses on, what you can prove, what you can test. Not a magical, invisible sky god. Uh, also not evolution, but we, we don't need to mention that. The problem is, as I've stated in the past, science isn't science unless all credible possibilities are taken into account. Unfortunately, I believe I'm correct when I theorize that mainstream science simply believes that a god is not a credible possibility. And since god is invisible, the theory can't be tested, and thus isn't scientific. It's religious. But as the oft-repeated comparison states, I don't need to see the engineers, the designers, and the manufacturers of say, my TV or my car or my cell phone, to know that they exist. I don't need to speak personally with the painter to know he exists. I know this based on the fact that his painting exists. As Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, the fact that we see an orderly universe, a mature universe, to the furthest reaches we can see in space, and accepting their premise, time, the fact that we see mature galaxies, many of them, when the man-made theories say that there should be very, very few, if any, 
The fact that evolutionary theories are nothing but a religion unto themselves, requiring faith in the theories, as even the flimsiest veneer of the theory of evolution is unprovable, untestable, and apparently unrepeatable, the fact that even the little testing they can do against their theories result in failure of the theory almost every time, and so many other facts that absolutely brutalize their godless theory, those alone should cause a real scientist, a true logician, a genuine human being, secure enough to be wrong, curious enough to search for truth no matter what that might be, those facts should cause all mankind to stop and question these theories before buying in, necessarily closing and covering their eyes, believing that if they can't see God, he must not exist. Unfortunately, just as they refuse to see God, they refuse to see the gaping holes and illogical nature of their theories. If scientists today were genuine in their pursuit of scientific facts, they would look to all possible sources of knowledge. Genesis 1 states, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And we see that stars, the sun, the moon, these are used for signs and for seasons and days and years. Now, notice how they aren't used for weeks or months. Days are governed by the rotation of the earth. Years are governed by the orbit of the planet around the sun. Weeks and months are not governed by astronomical timing. They're seemingly arbitrary, except that weeks, the seven-day week, is governed by this very creation event that we pulled this excerpt out of. Even the tiny details are accurate in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 4, as Moses is recounting the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, he tells the people to teach this law to their children, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth, and lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. And what have we done? Well, we worship the stars. We absolutely look to the sky to, to save us. But even the description of the stars, the Lord God divided all the stars unto all the nations. And we see that no matter where you are on the planet, there are innumerable stars to look at at night. In the book of Job, when God is explaining to Job in no uncertain terms that he is in fact God, the omnipotent God, the creator God, the God who controls all, he states, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? See, for all of our perceived wisdom, our might, we still have no idea how these constellations came into being, or how they work, or how they stay consistently in their course. We have no control over any of it. In Psalm 8, David questions, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
In Psalm 147, he states, He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. In Psalm 148, he exhorts, Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens. Did you know that the entire universe has a sort of haunting melody, a tune that it plays? Each celestial body gives off its own sound. Now, these aren't audible to you or me as there's no air in space to create sound waves, but they give off a, a frequency that scientists have translated into sound. I have no doubt that the entire universe is, in fact, praising God. And the Bible goes on with statements of fact and poetic accounts of creation, of God's power in the heavens, of his controlling of each and every movement. Now, although I agree that using the Bible as a science book is not what the Bible was intended for, but I also know that in science, when you develop hypotheses, you investigate and test against all data, against all known possibilities, and as theories are whittled away, those that remain are what you must conclude to be most correct. In the case of stellar evolution, the theories have been whittled away to the point that they really don't even exist anymore. The so-called scientific facts are nothing but shadows and phantoms, but science has nothing else to use, so they must grasp onto these theories with all of their might. If they'd only turn to the Bible to see what it says, they would find that the claims made in the Bible may not be able to be tested in full, may not be able to be repeated by man, but in no way have any or can any of the claims be disproven. Leaving the biblical account of creation of the universe, he made the stars also, the only plausible, possible, logical explanation for all we see today. Welcome back, my fellow capitalist American pig dogs, to our look at the glories of the only God-ordained, utopia-creating, perfect system of government, communism. This is part devoir in our look at the communist goals for America, as written about in the 1958 W. Cleon Skousen book entitled The Naked Communist and read into the congressional record by Congressman Albert S. Erlong Jr., a Democrat, let me remind you, from Florida in 1963. By the way, devoir is Russian for two. If you missed part one, I'd suggest you go back and listen to it, as it covers two very important points, where communism fits in the global political spectrum and the horrors of communism and what it's wrought on literally everything and everyone it touches. Plowing ahead, what is communism exactly? Well, after doing extensive research, I'll be honest, the opening paragraph on Wikipedia summed it up uh, very nicely. Quote, Communism, from Latin communis, or common universal, is a sociopolitical, philosophical, and economic ideology and current within the socialist movement, whose goal is the establishment of a communist society, a socioeconomic order centered around common ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange that allocates products to everyone in the society. Communist society also involves the absence of private property, social classes, money, and the state. Okay, so before we dive into the goals for America, I want to break this down just a little bit, this description of communism. We'll do this quickly. Now, notice that this is not only a political or a social or an economic ideology. It's all of those, and it's philosophical as well. 
The state, which is the communist government, you know, the rulers, they are your provider, protector, employer, producer, defender, as well as the lawgiver and the judiciary and the corrections. And finally, they are your God, literally. They don't want you to have religion. Look to the state to be your God. And if you do have a God, say like the Russian Orthodox, which is basically Catholic with a lot of bling, yeah, I know there are differences, but for our purposes, that's close enough. The Russian Orthodox religion is fine, as long as the state is uh, just a little bit above the church and the religion and any so-called magical sky god. Communism advocates for common ownership of everything, but not by you or I, by the state. There is no private property. They determine what to make, how to make it, how much to make, who should make it, who should get it and how much you can get, and the price you'll pay to get it. I mean, sure, you can own your house or your car, but honestly, that's only by their just pure benevolence. At any time, your stuff could cease to be your stuff. It's literally just at their pleasure that you own anything. But that's one of the real fascinations, one of the draws to communism for many. If you remove private property, if you remove capitalist ideas of being rewarded for performance or something like climbing the ladder, then you can remove money or at least the real value of money and you can relieve people of the concept of social class. There will be no more poor or middle class or rich. Everyone will be the same and love and rainbows and Skittles issuing forth from said rainbows. That will be the norm. Except, uh, <laughs> Except no. As I covered in episode one, communism, because a large bureaucratic government is neither nimble nor agile, can't move quickly enough to meet needs as they arise. This results in mass poverty, goods that are absolute garbage, services that are non-existent, massive shortages, and eventually mass starvation. Uh, but that's it's only happened you know, everywhere in the entirety of the history of communism, in every single country that's ever tried it. But I'm sure the United States can nail that communist utopia thing with no problem. I mean, we're America for crying out loud. Now, as I stated in episode one, communism is a global system, as opposed to Nazism, which is essentially the same thing, but generally looks at their ideology from a national perspective. So although Nazism would be fine with a global dominance, communism, by definition, desires global control. And this, comrades, is where we come to the plan for America. Now, although this list is over 60 years old, as I said before, the left, those on the evil side of the political table, are just fine with generation upon generation passing while slowly making progress toward their goal. I'd suggest that's because this is all they've got. They don't believe in a God in an afterlife or eternity. So if they can close their eyes and blink out of existence, knowing that they've pushed the world just a bit more toward their ultimate goal, well, that's their legacy. Now, those on the right, whether they're Christian or not, which they're much more likely to be Christian, find their purpose in something higher and bigger and better than politics. But whatever the reason, the right is just terrible at long-term planning or thinking. So these goals, although they're decades old, have been in place and are currently in place. And the goals have never really changed 
nor has the ultimate goal. Okay, so with that, let's start walking through these goals and see where we are in the United States as compared to the communist goals. Goal number one, quote, U.S. acceptance of coexistence as the only alternative to atomic war. Okay. So after World War II, a rivalry developed between the U.S. and the USSR, the Soviet Union. From a moral and ethical viewpoint, and as measured against our Constitution, which guarantees freedom and liberty to her people, the United States was the better country. At the end of World War II, we were the only nation that had a functional, usable atomic bomb. I mean, we didn't actually have any more. We dropped the two that we had, but we knew how to make them. At that point, we had the upper hand. But those were considered, from the very beginning, to be a last resort. The Soviet Union had a formidable military. They were large and powerful. And almost immediately, the chest bumping started in Europe, with the Soviets wanting to exert control and install their hand-picked leaders in various countries, and the United States pushing against them, basically trying to do the same thing. In 1949, Russia tested its first atomic bomb, which at that point made the U.S. and the USSR essentially equal rivals. Now, this was the beginning of the Cold War. The Cold War ended in the 60s or 70s, technically, as other nations became stronger. In the Soviet Union, they started to break apart. And then in the early 90s, when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power, the Soviet Union collapsed. Now, historians will tell you that it collapsed, the Cold War ended, the United States had won. But did we? The answer is, is actually no. No, we didn't. See, ideologies like this don't die. They, they just hibernate. And that's what communism and the concept of the USSR did. In fact, Vladimir Putin today and his leadership, they're very pro-USSR. And they would like nothing more than to see the old USSR reassembled, and a major power player on the world stage once again. Now, during the Cold War, and still today, the globe lives under the umbrella of what's termed Mutually Assured Destruction, MAD, with the USSR and the U.S. both having nukes, and then gradually other countries having nukes, and now pretty much every country has at least a few nuclear warhead-topped missiles, we all know that if one of us launches, the odds are pretty close to 100% that everyone launches, and then cockroaches living off of warehouses full of Twinkies, now they'll rule the planet. So none of us launch. And because of this theory of MAD, goal number one, quote, U.S. acceptance of coexistence as the only alternative to atomic war, well, that was checked off long before these goals were read into the congressional record. We almost immediately, begrudgingly, said that for now, eh, they'll just have to exist. But we're not going to make it easy for them. Or are we? Goal number two, quote, U.S. willingness to capitulate in preference to engaging in atomic war. Okay, yeah, so not just willing to allow communism and the USSR to exist. Oh, no, 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 no. This goal is for the U.S. to accept and work with them. Let's all just make nice. It's, it's like the two buddies smiling as they exit the store, but the one friend has a gun buried deep in the ribs of the other one. <laughs> We're just good friends. We're just walking and laughing and having a good time, right? I mean, are we all best friends across the global stage? No, certainly not. But we make nice, and for the most part, we all work together. We all tolerate, accept, and like each other. 
working together, trading, cooperating. That's what we do. Now, I'd say that the threat of atomic war might have been more of a factor decades ago than it is today, but, but either way, our politicians talk a big game. But those on the right and the left, save for a few, have absolutely no problem with the existence of communism today. It's just another political system to them. It's not, not in reality, but it is to them. I think we can check off goal number two. I think we probably did that one. Uh, goal number three, quote, develop the illusion that total disarmament by the United States would be a demonstration of moral strength. Ah, uh, yes, the moral high ground. So the question is, are weapons of war immoral? Now, we could argue that war is immoral. I'd even go so far as to say all wars, save for those commanded by God, are immoral. I mean, I would start there, and then I'd have to work my way back toward morality based on the reason for and the goals of the war. But in a sin-cursed fallen world, is war necessary from time to time? Well, simply put, yes. Whether it's offensive, and this is where morality should be our guide, or defensive, which, I'll be honest, I can't find a reason that defending your country's sovereignty would be wrong. Even if your country's corrupt, the defending against an outside attack seems natural and maybe even warranted. But if you're going to fight a war, you'll need weapons with which to do so. But the idea of disarmament, a nearly entirely leftist idea, which, remember, liberalism on the political spectrum is only a few steps from communism. Well, that's been pushed in the U.S. for decades. This goes for personal weapons with attacks against the Second Amendment and military weapons with the largest focus placed on nuclear weapons. We've had arms reduction treaties, non-proliferation treaties, nuclear disarmament movements. The U.N. is pushing for disarmament etc., 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 and as a result, a large number of nuclear weapons have been dismantled and disposed of on both or even all sides, but clearly not all, not even close. There's still an unspoken stalemate of mutually agreed destruction, and that can only be maintained through means of defending oneself, while at the same time being capable of launching an offensive counterattack at the level that the enemy cannot risk the losses that would result. Ronald Reagan promoted the concept nearly as old as creation itself of peace through strength. Now, this is quite simply mutually agreed destruction, but at a more base level. This doesn't have to be a destruction thing, just a deterrent. A man walking a woman to her car... This could be peace through strength, enough of a deterrent for someone with bad intentions to go ahead and move on. This can be a good guy with a gun confronting a criminal. This could be a security guard protecting a business. In the case of the United States, we've been able to maintain general peace in the world, the entire world, because we're strong enough that others don't want to try us. Now, that's not as cut and dry as maybe it once was, but generally the United States and various treaties among countries have been enough to deter another world war or massive conflict so far. I think the latest debacle of Russia invading Ukraine and the saber-rattling of China with regard to Taiwan shows that if we don't have strength through to the top of our country, you know, the president, well, then the peace that's been maintained, that'll probably crumble. Now, all that said, have the communists achieved goal number three, quote, 
developed the illusion that total disarmament by the United States would be a demonstration of moral strength. Well, they've convinced a, a large percentage of the population that we should disarm, but no, as of now, they have still not been able to convince the U.S. to a great enough degree that morally we should lay down our weapons, you know, so they can, they can walk in and take over. Goal number four, quote, permit free trade between all nations regardless of communist affiliation and regardless of whether or not items could be used for war. Okay, well, I mean, the joke is that everything comes from China, right? I mean, clearly a proud communist nation. Need I say more on this one? Yes, yes, I need more. So in 2019, per the Office of the United States Trade Representative, well, that reports that Russia was the 40th largest goods export of the U.S., exporting $5.8 billion of goods to Russia. At the same time, Russia was the 20th largest supplier we imported goods from, importing $22.3 billion worth of goods. In other words, we paid Russia $16.5 billion more than we got paid by them. Now, in 2020, China was our third largest export at $124.5 billion, and our number one import at $434.7 billion. So we paid them a whopping $310.2 billion more than they paid us. See, we, Russia, China, and another more than 160 nations are part of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Backing up a bit, from 1948 to 1994, an agreement abbreviated GATT, G-A-T-T, standing for General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, was in place. This was primarily aimed at the trade of goods for the economic development of nations around the world. Well, on January 1st, 1995, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, that was formed. Now, this was similar to GATT, but expanded the agreement to services and intellectual property as well as goods. There were 76 founding nations of the WTO, and that's now grown, as I stated, to over 160. Hong Kong and Macau, both labeled as property of China, were founding members, but China itself didn't join until December 11, 2001. Russia was even later joining, joining August 22nd of 2012. Cuba beat both of them, joining shortly after inception of the WTO on April 20th, 1995. So was goal number four, quote, permit free trade between all nations regardless of communist affiliation and regardless of whether or not items could be used for war. Was that accomplished? Yeah, I, I think we could probably check that one off pretty easily. And I think that's where we're going to stop for this episode. We've covered the first four communist goals, and as of now, the uh, the Reds are batting 750. <laughs> that is a pretty solid success rate. Great for them. Bad for us. Unfortunately, the communist system isn't really a matter of concern for um, really anyone anymore. I mean, there's concern about Russia, but not because they're communists. It's because they're somewhat powerful. They aren't really a friend to America. And they're being mean to Ukraine right now. There's concern about China because if they decide to do something, you know, like invade Taiwan, it's going to affect us, our economy and our stuff for sure. And possibly militarily, depending on how much of a war hawk we've got sitting in the captain's chair. But we're not worried about the fact that they're communists. Nah, it doesn't really matter. 
and we've got avowed socialists in our own government. And I guarantee a number of those on the left would gladly welcome in a communist dictator of their choosing, of course. And we have the Communist Party USA, very minor communist political party in the U.S., kind of akin to the Green Party or something like that. Now, you likely aren't even aware of the fact that they put forth a presidential candidate in nearly every election from 1924 to 1984. In only two of those elections in that time period did they put their support behind a candidate from a different party. In both cases, it was the Progressive Party. One of note would be Henry Wallace. Now, if that name sounds familiar, he was one of FDR's vice presidents, a progressive party member endorsed by the Communist Party USA. I mean, that, that sounds fine, right? Oh, it gets worse. 1984, as I said, was their last year running their own candidate. Starting in 1988, eh, they just urged their voters and members to vote Democrat. Yeah, what does that tell you? Right. So the candidates they supported were Michael Dukakis, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, John Kerry, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Shouldn't it be slightly concerning that the Communist Party USA, starting in 1988, 37 years ago, decided that the Democrats are close enough? I mean, I would love to have Bill Clinton back right now. He was a moderate dream compared to the... Uh, Eh, eh, the communists that we have wandering the halls of the White House lately. But even him, even Bill Clinton at that time, was apparently fulfilling the CPUSA dream enough for them to actually throw their support behind him. Now, we'll talk about why this is at a finer level in the coming episodes, but if the rate of accomplishment of the first four goals translates to the rest of the goals, well, we've likely got our answer. And with that, we'll close out our latest episode looking at the 45 Communist Goals for America. So, dosvidaniya for now. Well, my friends, by listening to this podcast segment this far, up to this point, you have now officially and probably legally agreed to be my accountability partner. So last week I did a segment on setting goals. I'm not a professional goalologist, but with some blatant theft from others, and my own additional spin, I've got a method of thinking through goal setting. Now, just briefly, recall that we want SMART goals. That stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time Sensitive. That method is used pretty much the world over, specifically in business, but I think it's really just about anywhere and everywhere at this point. This is the how in setting goals. As for what areas we want to set goals in, I stole that from Dave Ramsey. Those areas are finances, spirituality, fitness, education, family, career, and social. And then my personal spin is the why. We should have reasons, and if possible, a reason higher than just, you know, I want muscles, or I want more cash in the bank, or I want to be the boss. As Christians, we should try to have a spiritual reason, a goal toward increasing levels of sanctification. To do that, I look at the fruits of the Spirit, trying to tie a fruit or fruits to my goals. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As for me, my goals tend to drive toward areas of weakness in fruits of the Spirit. And then, of course, certain goals necessarily point at certain fruits. So with that said, here's my plan, and we'll see what happens as we go through the year. Now, I've set up some goals for myself for 2023. These may change as I go through the year, 
So we never really know what the year's going to bring, but this is my initial attempt at setting up some smart goals in most, but not all the Ramsey areas. And then I've tried to tie at least one or more fruit or fruits to these goals. I'll go over some of my goals in a little more detail. Some I'll kind of gloss over. Some I'm keeping to myself. Now, there are a few of these goals that I'm going to let you be my accountability partner on. My thought is that after the closing theme music ends on Friday's episodes, I'll give a brief update as to my progress. If you're curious, you can listen past the closing bump and hear how well or not so well I'm doing. I'll likely mention the location of this little progress report once or twice more, and then that's it. If you're interested, it will hopefully be out at the end of this thing on Fridays. So first, let's hit some of my goals. In the area of finance, as a background, and I'm not going to give any specific numbers. I think finances should be a relatively private matter, but I currently have a certain level of savings in the bank. I pay a certain amount over on my mortgage principal every month. That's the last debt I have. And I maintain a certain level of charitable giving through combination of tithes, charities, and parachurch ministries. So my first three, or you could all lump it together, and my first goal, however you want to count it, is to maintain those levels in 2023. The reason I say maintain is because I'll have some other expenses that I know of coming up, some that I can foresee showing up, and then there are the things you just never know. So I want to keep those levels the same as I manage my way through the other stuff. So keeping that in mind, one of the goals I'll have, and it's a goal that I'll meet one way or another, uh, I have a vehicle that I'll be having to at least purchase in, in part uh, for the kid who will be getting her license relatively soon. As a stretch goal, I want to finish remodeling the kitchen, which I started doing kind of piecemeal last year. Now, these goals I'm not really going to update in the, in the updates. It's at least not on a regular basis. You don't need to worry about holding me accountable to this. Um, if, there's, you know, if there's anything you need to know, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> One other goal in my financial area of goal setting is I need to update my will. As my current will and living will, oh, they're just grossly out of date at this point. So this is one I've got a date set. I want to have it done by the end of third quarter. I wish it was easier than the process is, but I'll try and have it done by the end of third quarter. Now, financial goals generally tend toward the fruit of self-control, at least to me. And there are some other fruits that can kind of fit into specific goals, just as an FYI. Now, in the areas of spiritual goals... First, I generally tend to classify these as all with regards to the fruits, as these goals should really touch on all of them through the year. So first, I want to be more deliberate about a brief morning devotional, starting my day off on the right foot. Now, I currently use the Ligonier Table Talk devotional book, which is a short Bible reading, working through a book of the Bible at a time with a one-page devotional point, and then there's some other little supplemental scripture readings in there. Um, it's set up as a five-day-a-week system. My goal is to average reading that devotional five days per week. Now, of course, I've got back issues and things, so I'm working my way through them. I could do more if I really wanted to, if I can, but I want to try and maintain at least five days per week doing that. I've also been working on being more deliberate about getting into the Bible on a daily basis. To that end, I have a John MacArthur yearly Bible. Um, I started reading in that last year. My goal is to finish that plan by the end of September. 
Um, and then after that, I want to start back in with a reading plan, but a much more in-depth study, not just Bible in the year. I'll flesh out that goal as the time comes closer. Prayer is another area that I and most of us struggle being consistent in. This is a goal I haven't finished developing yet. I'm a really structured individual, so I like to have a plan. To that end, what I want to do is, is find probably an app that will help me organize my prayers into topics. I know this, this sounds very mechanical. Just bear with me. This is how my brain works. There are some things I want to pray for daily, right? Things like family and, and personal needs and you know things like that. Then there's some topics I could categorize into specific days. You know, think of things like uh, praying for our leaders or praying specifically for the church or the prayer list from the church or maybe my job or something like that, right? There's a lot of those type of things. So if you try, well, let me, if I try to pray for everything every time, at least from my experience, it lends me to forgetfulness. It lends me to a wandering mind because you're just going over the same things every time. So having a deliberate, dedicated time for specific topics will help me to focus better, I think. We're going we're gonna to try. We're going to find out. Um, this one, you don't need to hold me accountable, but I'll try to remember to give a general update as I kind of figure this one out. And then I also have a stretch goal. This is something I wanted to do a few years ago. I got a decent start on it, you know, and then failed. Uh, I want to memorize the book of Romans. Now, I know I can't do that by the end of this year, um, I was very close at the time to having the first three chapters memorized. That was a few years ago. And so by the end of October, I want to have the first three chapters down at a minimum. Now, I call this a stretch goal because with other goals, some I've talked about, some I will talk about, with other stuff going on with this podcast, as well as, you know, all that stuff that you just hate to do, you know, like work and sleep, uh, my amount of free time is small. So, We'll just kind of have to see how this goes. All right, that's the spiritual goals. Next is fitness. I've got one goal in this area for 2023, and that's going to test my self-control and my patience, looking at it from a fruit standpoint. <sighs> I need to lose weight. <laughs> uh, shocker. This is one uh, that I will be updating on a regular basis. Uh, you can hold me accountable to this. So my starting weight and I'm counting it as of last Tuesday, was 214.4 pounds. That's fine if I was six foot four. I'm not. I'm five foot eight and going down. So that's too much. It's, uh, it's too much. So my goal is to lose an average of one and a half pounds per week, getting down to the 170 to 175 range by the end of July. This is going to take some focused work. I've done this before, and I can do it again. It's not going to be easy, but it is doable. It is a achievable, right? So that one, you're going to help me stay accountable on that. As for educational goals, I need to get back to reading. I love to read. And honestly, this podcast, it sucked up a lot of the time I used to use to read and do some of these other things. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy doing this, but I definitely need to find a balance. You know, it's kind of funny, just in the last uh, couple weeks, two of the YouTubers that I follow who put out content two to three times a week, they've come out and said that they're going to back off on putting out that much content because it just takes so much time and they're not wrong. So as I said, 
I want to try and get things in balance. And one of those things is to get back into reading. I'm hoping that I can blow this goal out of the water. But to at least hold me to a target, I want to read a minimum of 300 pages per month. I figured that's a good sized book a month or a couple moderately sized books per month. Now, personally, I read mostly faith-based nonfiction books. That's why I put this in the educational section. But I have no problem with some fun palate cleansers as well, like my partial collection of Tom Swift Jr. books. Throw one of those in there quickly. I'll keep you posted on this one. This goal hits mostly, if you think about it, on self-control. Got to put down the phone, turn off YouTube, whatever it is, so that I can spend some time reading. 300 pages a, a month, 10 pages a day, that's not hard to do. I just have to do it. Now, regarding family, you know, I don't know. Who knows what this year will bring? But as of right now, I want to get my kid trying for her license by early in her summer vacation and licensed and on the road by the time school starts next year. Now, I'm not in complete control of this, but my part is to give her enough practice time and enough instruction to get her ready. Then it's on her. Now, beyond that, my time with her is growing very, very short. So I want to make sure I spend some quality time with her from time to time every month and not just, you know, pass in the hall with a brief head nod. Nothing I'm going to update here on a regular basis. These goals will touch on areas of love, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, for sure, maybe others. But these are more just my personal goals. Next is career. I'll be honest, and Dave Ramsey would just destroy me for this, but I have no career goal. I enjoy my career. I have no issues with the company I work for. I don't have any plans to leave them. I have no interest in climbing the ladder as of right now. And I know that this theoretically limits my earning potential for now, and I'm okay with that. Now, maybe in the future I'll feel differently, but for now, the only goal I'd have for my career is to just kind of stay the course. I'm, I'm good. And finally, social. Well, I'm a massive introvert, and I, I don't really care much for social situations. I don't really have a goal in this area right now. I don't consider it a high priority right now. Now, that said, I probably should have something here. So at this point, I'm just going to kind of keep this topic in the back of my mind, and we'll see what happens. And there you have it. Most of my goals for 2023. I need to set up some ways of tracking a few of these things. A few of my goals I've already started on. Some will basically start now. If you'd like, you can let me know your thoughts on these or ask questions or whatever, either by commenting on the episode or by using my contact email found in the episode notes. Like I said, you are now legally bound by legal law type stuff to hold me accountable on certain goals. Probably. I'll figure out exactly which ones, and starting hopefully this Friday after the closing bump music fades, I'll have a very brief update for you. As one of the YouTubers I watch regularly says, this will either work or it won't. And that, I think, is a great way to look at this little experiment. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. <laughs>